I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. The rare disease community boasts some of the most engaged and knowledgeable patients and caregivers in the world. The community has launched countless successful rare disease organizations, research groups, and patient advocacy groups. Whenever an orphan drug for a rare disease begins to make headlines, it has often been supported through the efforts of a rare disease patient, survivor, or caregiver. One such community member is Antonio Maltese. He's a senior at Virginia Commonwealth University studying political science and German, and is a member of several advocacy groups. Also joining us is Charles River Distinguished Scientists Lauren Black and David Fisher, Executive Director, Discovery Services for Charles River's Saffron Walden site. They are here to answer some of Antonio's questions about the drug development process. Welcome everyone. Hey guys. Before we get into the science, let's learn a little bit about our guest. Antonio, can you tell us about your rare diseases and how you got involved with the community? Yeah, so currently I'm 22 years old. I have two rare diseases. And like you said, I'm studying political science at Virginia Commonwealth University and minoring in German. I had a pretty normal life up until I was 19 years old back in 2017 when I tested positive for Huntington's disease, which is a rare terminal neurological disease that affects motor, cognitive, and behavioral functions. Not much has changed since I just tested positive for the genetic test. My father is affected by Huntington's disease currently. I I also have osteonecrosis, which I found out about a year ago, in both of my hips, and that's when the pain really started. I had to get a left hip replacement, and I have a right hip replacement coming up in December. Um, And osteonecrosis is a rare, painful bone disease that affects the blood supply to the hips. What are your plans for your political science major? So I plan on being a healthcare lobbyist. I'm currently studying to become a lobbyist. I work on Capitol Hill with a couple different advocacy groups and organizations to raise awareness on rare diseases, to lower healthcare costs, and to support the rare disease community as a whole. One such legislation that I've worked on is the Newborn Baby Screening Act. And what I lobbied for on Capitol Hill was a new law that would allow genome sequencing to be covered under Medicaid to expand the Newborn Baby Screening Saves Lives Act. Instead of just testing for 20 diseases, it would test a baby's whole genome. So it would cut the diagnosis, the diagnostic odyssey time from five to seven years down to the the time the baby was born. And that's something that I have a lot of passion for and advocate for on Capitol Hill. That is really awesome because one of the worst things that happens is that we don't understand what disease it is until it's far too late to intervene for progressive disorders. So, gosh, I'm, I'm really happy about you working on that. Yeah, because some of the families we work with, they, they spent a good three, four years from going from one physician to the other they don't understand the symptoms um, and then finally somebody decides okay let's do a whole genome sequence but then date then you're four years down the line and, and you you may have had an, an opportunity for intervention that you've just missed and that's exactly why i'm working on this legislation with legislators all across bipartisan um, organization and groups on capitol hill 
because it is, it's not only costly for the families that are going through that diagnostic odyssey, but it also will save lives by expanding access to this next generation whole genome sequencing that we currently have available. I know I've heard of many different kinds of diseases, especially genetic diseases that could have good results for treatment if you have early interventions. So that definitely sounds like an incredibly worthwhile thing to be working on. Yeah. I would imagine that your own um, life experiences have played into you having a passion for these sorts of projects. Yeah, especially Huntington's disease, since it's a genetic disease that is just determined, and I'm sure David and Lauren can get into this much better than I can, but since Huntington's disease is determined by a single mutated genetic repeat, it's definitely a disease that I see whole genome sequencing and genetic engineering to be able to treat and or cure Huntington's disease. So it it is definitely something that needs to be expanded and something I'm extremely passionate about because genetic diseases affect so many people. And it's such a new technology that we have that can save so many lives that I'm just really trying to raise awareness on it so people know what's available to them. Yeah, absolutely. So besides this uh, this project that you've been working on, what kinds of organizations have you participated in so far in your in your career? So I've collaborated with SpaceX, I've collaborated with NIH, HHS, I've collaborated a little bit with the National Organization for Rare Diseases. I currently work for a bipartisan nonprofit named Mandate Democracy. And we are working with IBM to develop blockchain referenda to send directly to voters to hold legislators accountable to the opinion of voters. I've also worked with the Every Life Foundation in D.C., and they've really helped my lobbying career on Capitol Hill. They set up meetings and they set up appointments on Capitol Hill to be able to speak with legislators and to present various different legislation to advocate and lobby for. And... I've also worked with the Huntington's Disease Society of America and the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization. And I believe you've also worked with the Trend Community, which uh, several people that we've had um, on Eureka have been a part of. Yeah, I'm actually an intern at Trend Community, and um, I work with Maria Picone on different webinars and different data acquisition situations that they have going on. Excellent. So what projects that you've participated in so far, have you been especially proud of? I've been especially proud of the Newborn Baby Screening Save Lives Act. I'm also very honored to be able to work with the rare disease community and to be able to have my voice heard and to make sure that the rare disease community voice is heard on a greater scale. The current project that I'm working on at Mandate Democracy is leading the healthcare working group, and I am developing poll questions that will eventually go out directly to voters through the IBM blockchain voting website that we are creating. And I'm I'm really proud of the work that we're working on and getting done with the healthcare working group, especially having two rare diseases and being able to be in that position to make sure that we are fully encompassing the views of people with rare diseases and chronic diseases. I was wondering, Antonio, could you reprise me on the the facts and statistics on you know, we say that rare doesn't mean rare, right? If you look at all of the people in everybody's families that have a quote-unquote rare disease, 
and you just look across the whole population of America, aren't we talking about a fairly large percent, like 10% or something of people have a, have a rare disease of some kind or another in their family? Yeah, there are currently 30 million people in America with a rare disease, according to the Every Life Foundation. One in 10 babies will be born with a rare disease, again, according to the Every Life Foundation. And in regards to Huntington's disease and osteonecrosis, I believe that there are only 30,000 people in America with Huntington's disease, while 200,000 people are currently at risk for Huntington's disease. And with osteonecrosis, I believe less than 200,000 people are diagnosed every year with osteonecrosis. So it's correct to say that rare isn't rare. I mean, 10% of America can have a rare disease. Exactly. So you're representing and influencing, you know, a huge number of people here, 10% of the U.S., and I presume that number carries out throughout the world. Yeah, and that number is only going to increase the more that we are getting earlier preventative care. That number is only going to increase if we do improve access to whole genome sequencing. Rare really isn't rare. You're hitting the nail on the head with that one. I found that people don't really realize how tight-knit of a community the rare disease community is once you go searching for those rare disease organizations to find out just how many people also have a rare disease. Yeah, I think we really can't stress that enough. I mean... I've been influenced in my family by an ultra-rare congenital malformation. And so I know what rare is, you know, close up and personal. That would mean if 10% of America is affected, everybody in the U.S. knows somebody, either in their family or in their close community, that's affected by this. Yeah. We're one degree of separation from having it ourselves. And that doesn't even include... The number of people that are secret carriers of a of a gene that could be a killer if they just happen to marry somebody and have children with, again, someone with another silent mutation, and then they had no idea that this was going to hit them. It's just absolutely random. But in, when 10% of people have some sort of rare disease, it's going to happen, right? Yeah. But what you just mentioned about the silent gene, that actually is far too common in the Huntington's disease community because only 5 to 10% of people on average who are at risk for Huntington's disease get tested for Huntington's disease. And one of my personal missions is to ensure that people know that the data that we currently have is a little bit skewed because of that fact that people, not not everybody is going out to get tested. Not everyone is going out to find out if they do have a genetic mutation. Not everyone has the means and the socioeconomic standards to achieve those results of finding out if they have a genetic mutation or not. And so a lot of the data that we have actually might be much lower than the accurate demographic data of people in America and across the world. Antonio, do you think that this is particular for Huntington's disease because of the historic stigma that was associated with it? Yes, 100%. And and now that, that there are a number of large-scale clinical trials ongoing, do you think that has changed people's mindset that they may still feel is this stigma, but there is also hope? through these clinical trials. And if you don't get tested, you, you of course, never know if you 
can enroll in those trials or should enroll. Wait, so I, I don't know the Huntington's field like you two do. Could you tell me what you mean by this stigma? So the motor dysfunction, the chorea, to an outsider looks like you're you're walking drunk on the street. So so that is the, the stigma that, that the behavioral changes are quite severe. And then just walking across the street will already suggest to some people that you're just dr- drunk. And obviously that is not the case. So so clearly through the outside world, it it's very easily misinterpreted, this disease. I would also imagine that it's just sort of basic psychology. People don't want to know if they have a disease that doesn't have a cure yet. But the closer we get to finding effective treatments that will hopefully get people to want to face it, it'll be a little bit easier to face it. Yeah, exactly. And both of those two impediments that both David and Mary brought up are two of the main reasons why many people don't get tested. But going back to the clinical trials, I do think as more clinical trials are opening up and as more people realize that you do have to get tested for most of these trials in order to participate, uh, not only is it striking hope in the Huntington's disease community, But it also is striking down that stigma that we live in a 21st century. We live in a century where there are millions of people with rare diseases. And it just comes down to societal acceptance and also self-acceptance. And it's not something that everyone is able to do at first, but it is something that I believe as more and more people do it and do get tested or do participate in clinical trials, that stigmatization of the disease itself will decrease. Yeah, that's that's really amazing and, and very powerful to hear that, especially coming from you, Antonio. So we're very grateful that you're here. But this podcast is not just about us grilling you about your life. We also want you to get something out of it. So we have Lauren and David here. Um, if we want to switch gears a little bit and let you take over co-hosting with me, uh, what would you like to hear about from, from them? Yeah, um, I guess as my first question, can you guys explain the general path an ordinary drug might take through the FDA and how it's different from an orphan drug? Well, I can start with that, and David, you can fill in. I mean, very broadly, drug development breaks down into several stages. Let's just say there's three of them. One of them is to learn what is it that's wrong in the disease, you know, what is going wrong? What is the pathway that's affected? What is the gene that's affected? That's what we call target identification. And it tells us what is it that we think we can change about that, selectively change about that disease process that will normalize someone's health, right? Bring it back into the realm of normalcy, help it correct itself. So that's the purpose of a drug is to affect the structure and the function of the body by definition legal definition. And we're looking for something that makes that change, hopefully as selectively as possible, and leaves the other systems alone, known as off-target effects or toxicities or adverse events, right? So we hear about those all the time in safety and clinical trials. So we're trying to make sure that as we go through the drug development process, that our what are first hypotheses you know, strengthening, emphasizing that the word hypothesis means that a drug starts with a hypothesis means we think the drug will work, we hope the drug will work, 
And then it becomes incumbent on the pharmaceutical companies from there on out and all the people working in the field along with them as collaborators to try to say that those hypotheses are bearing out. We're going to put data at all of these steps. We're going to see if the processes are normalized. And then we're going to see if we can design a drug that is going to selectively affect those. So then we move into drug discovery and we try to actually design the drug product itself to do what it's hoped to do. And that that's an area where David is really an expert. And then it has to move into, you know, once it's shown that it has, it's flying the flags that look like it's going to work, then we have to make sure that it doesn't have a lot of off-target effects or toxicities associated with it. Now I can say that all things are toxic if you imbibe them. You can kill yourself by drinking too much water <laughs> or taking too much salt in. You know, everything has Everything is a poison at the right dose, going back to the 1600s. And I think that what we need to do in the process of safety testing is see if there's what we call a safety margin between the activities that we want and the activities that we don't want or toxicities. And at that point, we can elect a drug for clinical development. We put it through those formal safety testings to make sure we have a very thorough chain of custody. We have very highly qualified and objective data on safety, and those are submitted to FDA for review. They go through it line by line, recheck everything. So those are pretty cut and dry. The thing that's different, getting to your point, now that I gave you some background, is is it different for an orphan disease drug? And it is and it isn't. There's not really an exception for rare diseases to the normal pathways. But what you can do is you can try to put together weight of evidence approaches. You can try to look for a specific population that doesn't have any treatment whatsoever. And it's true that you can leverage the size of the trial, the severity of the disease, the rareness of the condition, and whether or not there are appropriate animal models at all to characterize a genetic change that only occurs in humans. So you can, try to, you can try to put science all around these and create um, an argument that goes to the regulatory agencies saying that we're basically doing our darndest and we think we're developing the best pathway uh, to characterizing this drug as possible. And then you basically give it to them to brainstorm over it and see if they agree with you to make some exceptions to those rules. I was going to say that if it, if a drug is severe enough, I would imagine that the safety margin you'd want between dose and toxicity might get narrower. Mm -hmm. For example, with chemotherapy, which is obviously pretty toxic. Yeah, but we have to remember that a lot of the rare diseases are diseases for life. So most likely the treatments that, that you're going to give these patients will be for life. Whereas with the chemotherapy, hopefully it, it is a relatively quick schedule and, and then you can drop the drug again where and the patient can recover from the side effects so it, it is it is slightly different from from chemotherapy which uh, indeed has a sometimes a lower safety margin i think what is important to say is that 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 the fda does recognize the importance of of rare and orphan disease drug development and uh, there are opportunities to get priority for review which could save you uh, a couple of months. And then as a bonus for commercialization of, an, of a rare and orphan disease drug, 
there's an extended life of the intellectual property. So, so there are a number of, of aspects that sort of cushion the financial impact and the timelines. But as Lauren said, it's still a very similar drug development process you need to go through, especially with the safety uh, studies. And is there a specific drug that either of you have passed that you had to put a lot of time and focus and energy on or that you'd like to briefly describe on how that process went? David, you probably have the most history on drug discovery. I think the problem that, that we all face in drug discovery is that it typically takes a very, very long time before a drug that you've worked on actually reaches patients or reaches the market. So there are few drugs that, that are in clinical trial where I've spent some time on. Of course, this is all a team effort. I don't think there are any drugs on the market now or reaching the market where it's a single individual that, that has, has had the majority contribution. Uh, but there are a few that, that I, I've contributed to and that are in, in clinical uh, trials. Well, you mentioned clinical trials earlier, so this is a good time to ask you, David, can you explain in some basic terms how Huntington's disease works? And then maybe we can get into um, some of the drugs that you've worked on. Absolutely. Yeah. So Huntington's disease, as Antonio already said, is a uh, single gene mutation. It's an expansion of a, a small stretch of DNA in that particular gene. So there are more diseases now known that, that have these expansions, but Huntington's disease was one of the first disorders where uh, did such an expanded sequence of a gene was responsible. Most genetic mutations are, are single nucleotide changes or deletions. Like Hunter's disease is, is special in that it has this, um, what we call a CAG expansion in the gene. And it, it's also informative because what we've realized is that the size of the expansion tells you the probability of the uh, the age of onset of the disease. So it is a, a late, typically a late onset neurodegenerative disorder. Um, but the longer that expansion, the longer that CAG repeat, the earlier age of onset. So, so that has, has given us at least a biological clue into the uh, the mechanism, wh why this, this expansion uh, causes the disease. What we believe in the field is that it is a, a misfolding of the, the protein encoded by this gene. And the longer the repeat, the, the larger that what we call polyglutamine expansion becomes. And if it is long enough, it will misfold and it will in induce an aberrant function of the protein. This is where our understanding unfortunately stops because uh, we all understand that it has something to do with this misfolding and, and aberrant function, but we still don't fully understand how the, the Huntington protein with this polyglutamine expansion causes neurons to do dysfunction and, and neurons to die in the brain. And we also don't, don't really understand the, uh, the selectivity of the, the regions in the brain that, that are most sensitive to the uh, mutation. But this, this gene is mutated throughout the whole body, throughout the whole brain, but there, there are particular neurons in the uh, corticostriatal pathway that, that are most sensitive. So let me get this right, David, because I don't know all of the molecular genetics you, you know. 
But basically, you're saying that the genetic mutation leads to a misfolded protein that's toxic. Yes, that's what we believe. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that succinct summary, Lauren. And so would it be would it be accurate? So I'm going to throw out a hypothesis here as a scientist that doesn't know as much about Huntington's. Let's say you drop the amount of that protein. Is that is that in itself sufficient to help ameliorate or make better the disease? Yeah, and, and that is exactly the strategy that Roche together with Ionis are pursuing with their antisense oligonucleotide. So, so this is a drug that targets the Huntington messenger RNA, so the intermediate between the, the, the gene and the protein. And the, the purpose of that antisense oligonucleotide is to downregulate the Huntington messenger RNA and therefore reduce the expression of the toxic protein. So they have clearly demonstrated in phase two trials that mechanistically this, this drug indeed reduces the, the levels of the, uh, the toxic protein in Huntington's patients. Uh, but of course, those trials were relatively short. So we now have to understand in the phase three trials that have just started is, is if that indeed changes the disease course in patients, if it stops the progression of, of Huntington's or, or even delays the development. Yeah, so th that is a very important strategy that, that people have, have now under, have started to, uh, to test. So let me just ask one more science question. It's always great to get a chance to talk to you, David. When you drop that protein, is I guess it's because it's aberrant, getting rid of it would actually be the best thing, at least in a simple way of looking at it. But is there another protein available in people with Huntington's to fill the role that that mutant protein is failing to do? So touches upon another sore point in, in Huntington's disease research. We do not, even after more than 25 years of research, understand what the function of the normal protein is. We, we think the mutation causes this toxic gain of function, and it is not a loss of, of normal function. But every species from zebrafish through to mice and, and human, we all have this Huntington gene, so it, it must be doing something. And we, and we don't know what, what the, the consequences would be of, of completely reducing the expression of, of the Huntington gene. We think that just taking out the mutant gene or the mutant protein is going to be okay because there are people uh, around that, that have only a single copy of, of the Huntington gene and they don't have any disease. They don't have Huntington's disease. So that is completely compatible with, with normal development and, and life. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, other diseases are more complex, yeah. right? That dropping it could be bad, raising it could be exactly. bad. This one sounds like, you know, more of a more of a strong hypothesis than some of the diseases I hear about. Yeah. And as we understand it, that that hypothesis is getting a thorough run for its money in the phase three trials right now. Um, I would imagine that maybe next year we have some data out of those, right? They are going to run for a number of years, so it, it is going to take some time. Um, but I think what, what, what these positive phase two data have also done is, is tell the field that this is a strategy worth pursuing. 
So this is not the only technology that's now being employed in, in either preclinical research or in early clinical trials to try to achieve the same outcome, reduce the levels of this, this mutant protein. And for instance, there are, are companies like Unicure who have started clinical trials with uh, viral vectors that will, through microRNAs, reduce the, uh, the mutant protein. So it's a, a very similar approach, but with a different technology. Um, and again, it's, it's early days. Those trials have just started, so we don't know if, if they're going to work and, and how efficacious this is going to be. And then on the heels of that, there are now also small molecules going to start clinical trials soon. And, and Novartis has just announced that, that one of their molecules is, is going to go into a Huntington's trial. So again, very positive news. It's all trying to hit the Achilles heel of this machinery of, of transforming the genetic mutation into this toxic protein at different stages, trying to break that. What is the main difference between using oligonucleotides in trying to fight against Huntington's disease and other genetic diseases in comparison to CRISPR-Cas9 mm. or a different type of vector? Yeah, what are your guys' yeah. thoughts on those technologies? Yeah, it's a very different uh, technology. So an antisense oligonucleotide is basically a synthetic drug. It's just it's a rather large drug, but you chemically synthesize this. And it's a small, small stretch of something that looks a bit like, like DNA or RNA, but it's chemically modified. And what it does is you, you, after you inject it uh, into the patient, it needs to be injected. It finds the messenger RNA it's designed against and it degrades it. But this drug doesn't have an, an infinite half-life. So after a couple of months, you probably have to give another dose. So it, it is a bit like taking a regular drug. Every day you have to take a drug. It's a little bit less frequent. But still, you every now and then you need to, to load the body up and, and get some more of this drug on board. And then it will just seek out the, the, the messenger RNA of, of Huntington and degrade it. And, and catalytically, so they'll just turn this over. The gene therapy program that I just mentioned um, from Unicure is very different in that it uses a virus. It's a it's a it's a harmless virus, but it has been repackaged to to bring in um, a vector, as we call, which is a piece of, D, of DNA or RNA that will then encode the machinery to basically do the same. But because it is a virus, you only have to give it once. So you give it once to the patient, you inject it into the, the brain or into the CSF. The difficulty with the CRISPR-Cas9 um, strategy at the moment, and, and it's basically because we've only started to use this in clinical setting a couple of years ago, is delivery, how to get it to every single cell in the brain. And this is something where an antisense oligonucleotide probably has a, has a better place because it just diffuses randomly into the brain. It's all transient. Uh, and and these, these CRISPR-Cas9 vectors, they need to seek out every cell and, and make that edit. And that is just something that at the moment we haven't really figured out for diseases of the brain. Okay. I guess really quickly going back to drug discovery, and this isn't something that we've mentioned before, 
Do you think with the rise of artificial intelligence that drug discovery will be ramped up and the interval between finding a drug and then repurposing that drug for treatment that the time will be decreased with the use of artificial intelligence? I think it certainly has a number of applications in the drug discovery process. And and if you look at small molecule drug discovery, what you typically used to do and, and still do for a large extent is once you've identified the target, as, as Lauren said, then you try to find a drug. And we used to be very inefficient but use brute force so you just screen a hundred thousand candidate compounds or a million candidate compounds depending on how much uh, of those you you had in the freezer and and you hope to find one and what we've started to do is is do this a little bit more cleverly by indeed using artificial intelligence to say okay this is what the target looks like are there any pockets that that a molecule would fit and then use a machine learning to find potential uh, compounds that that would hit that pocket and then perhaps you don't need to screen a million compounds you only need to screen a thousand compounds to find that same hit so you're saving time and and we're probably going to see other applications as well uh, for drug repurposing for instance trying to find other indications that the drug may work for uh, so at the moment, everything is basically wet science where, where people in, in, in the lab at the bench run experiments and test uh, thousands of molecules. And perhaps we, we're just going to be better at that and can just use artificial intelligence to come up with a short list and then test those. You still need to test them, but then you don't need to test all of them. You can just test a couple. Well, that's very hopeful. I I hope that artificial intelligence can help decrease the time and help scientists find uh, new drugs and treatments um, a lot quicker, because I know that's something that people with lifelong diseases or terminal diseases don't have much of, is time. Absolutely. Right. Well, one of the things I wanted to point out, too, is a lot of people talk about artificial intelligence, you know, and they're usually talking about computerized systems that try to come up with algorithms and search through big data. I wanted to just mention that there's a a different approach that's basically like a a multivariate analysis where it's also sort of a big data approach, but you take many different features of a drug, its target, known drugs that affected it, what proteins are changed in the cells with all of those drugs, you do like a, a very 360 degree approach. You can even factor in the severity of a particular change in patients. You can factor in you know, whether a biomarker went up in the serum a whole lot. And there are algorithms now that can help analyze multiple different, fundamentally different types of molecular and clinical data all in one fell swoop. And then that can pop out um, things that are like new areas in the pathway that we didn't previously appreciate. So I think there's, you know, a variety of big data approaches that are trying to improve the drug discovery process, but they're getting much more, I guess you could call it holistic from looking at many, many different kinds of data all together at the same time. So there's there's lots of innovation out there to trying to reduce the time to target discovery as 
as David mentioned, it's been 25 years of slogging through <laughs> experiment after experiment. And they still don't know why this protein is toxic, right? So those are the kind of things that we really need to, you know, Mother Nature is complicated, so complicated. And there's so many parts of her intricacies that we don't understand at a basic research level. I mean, maybe this maybe this cross applies to your lobbying efforts. We need to really keep our basic research funds really well stocked in terms of basic NIH grants so that we can understand these basic pathways um, of disease processes all the way down to molecular fine points and how they integrate up to physiologic pathways. We, we can't starve our basic research processes. I would imagine that's especially true for rare diseases where there might not be as much research as for more common ones. That's right. And I don't want to spend 25 years delaying a, a drug for the next rare disease down the, down the line. I mean, one of the things that's really unique and wonderful about going after genetic diseases is with whole genome sequencing, we can actually see what's wrong. You know, if we can find out, well, I'm talking about monogenic diseases, things that we know a specific mutation is causing the problem. That opens up what to do immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, to round us out, Antonio mentioned that he was part of this group, Mandate Democracy. And uh, I think you guys might be able to help him out a little bit with some work. Yeah. So I guess I'm just wondering what you guys need to see as scientists change in the current political atmosphere in regards to current legislation or in regards to the way things are passed or public opinion uh, to speed up the processes that we've talked about on this podcast. Okay, I'll take the the first crack at that. Basically, we, we need to keep lobbying Congress to keep funding basic research. I think COVID's a good example. We just learned about this virus and its uh, structure in February. We threw a lot of money, a lot of trillions of dollars into a virus that we have hardly had any basic research on. We're still learning if the immune responses are durable. We need T-cell research on that virus, just like we did T-cell research on AIDS. Lots of basic research has been skipped in that case. So we need to keep funding basic research to understand these pathways. Every time we learn something, I'll use AIDS again as an example, when we put a, a bunch of money in the late 80s and 90s into understanding T-cells for AIDS, we learned so much about T-cells, we were able to substantively fix a lot of autoimmune diseases with new drugs because those are T-cell driven too. So all, we started off with basic research for AIDS, but it translated into so many new drugs that affect so many people. And so I think Rare disease to me is the same thing. You have invested in, even if it's a small number of patients, and you understand more about that pathway, invariably we're going to find that that pathway applies to other systems and other diseases. The few patients that we study in a tiny little clinical trial can lend so much information about what happens in humans versus animals that we're able to springboard off of that also into learning about better animals better models, better cellular systems that can give us a discovery tool for learning for other drugs. So it's a very full circle kind of thing. When we start with basic research, it generates all sorts of other benefits, 
not just for the one disease you start studying. So, Davin, do you want to continue? Absolutely. I think this this is uh, it's also important to always keep an open mind and and not look at the particular problem you want to solve, but make sure that that if there's something you hadn't expected that you notice it and that it's something you can exploit that you do that. And the the Novartis press release last week on Brennaplam is exactly that. So. Brenaplan was intended to, to be a small molecule drug for spinal muscular atrophy, and they were running this in clinical studies. And then when they looked at, at other genes that were modulated by this drug, they found out that Huntington was downregulated by this drug. It was not designed to do that, but it did so. And now they have pivoted the drug and they're going to start a phase two trial in Huntington patients. So just by keeping an open mind and looking at all the data, realizing that a side effect that they had not expected is actually an opportunity. So yeah, generate uh, data, keep an open mind, and indeed basic research is, is very, very important. Yeah, I would imagine that the, the circumstances that led to the coronavirus outbreak were certainly not unique or unusual. So maybe someone's uh, some funding should be put into basic coronavirus research and that could, of course, apply to just about any type of biological research. And I think we need to be, you know, natural skeptics and follow, uh, you know, very scientific, logical steps to say, if you assert that something is true, well, what is the data to back that up? And in each case, we need to have data-driven approaches and we have to drive our clinical trials off of you know, good old keen observation. So we can't drop any of the basic science lessons that we learn in our graduate school when we educate people in the public or perhaps when you educate people in Congress and in, in uh, the contacts you have. Keep stressing that, you know, we need replication of data. We need to have objectivity. We need to have statistical rigor in order to interpret what these these findings are, you know, before we act on them and dump a trillion dollars into them. Yeah, so definitely reinforcing the scientific method that seems to be integral to this entire process might have been a little lost along the lines in, in regards to the way Congress funds scientific research. Thank you, everyone, for joining me and for this really awesome conversation. This has been really wonderful. Um, I'm so glad to be able to speak to all of you about these important topics. Thank you, everyone. Antonio, thanks for looking us up. I mean, it's been a pleasure meeting you, and we really wish you the best in all of your efforts. Please do stay in touch. Let us know. Thank you, and you too as well, and thank you for all the research that you do and the data that you provide to the community. Absolutely, and good luck with your hip replacement next month. Thank you. Yeah, that too. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye, everyone.